Welcome to the MedTech Talent Lab, the number one catalyst for advancing careers and building high-performance teams. Sponsored by the Anthony Michael Group, helping companies secure in-demand talent in regulatory affairs, quality, clinical, engineering, R&D, and other areas for medical device, digital health, diagnostics, and other organizations across the U.S. life sciences sector. Here's your host, Mitch Robbins. All right, welcome back to another episode here on the MedTech Talent Lab podcast. I'm your host, Mitch Robbins. For those of you unfamiliar, I am the founder and managing director of a company called the Anthony Micro Group. In essence, we help companies across the medtech space to build high-performing teams, primarily in technical areas, areas like regulatory affairs, quality, R&D. We've got a, uh, a very rapidly growing practice on the commercial side with market access and, and reimbursement. Uh, but I have the a privilege of being here on a regular basis to interview best-in-class leaders straight from the industry on all things talent-related. And uh, today, I am joined by Mr. Tim Hara, who is the Vice President of R&D at uh, Sinosure. And I was I was uh, giving Tim a hard time offline saying, this guy is hard up for formal education. He's got his Bachelor's of Science in Chemical Engineering from John Hopkins University. He's got his PhD in Biomedical Engineering from Tufts University. And, uh, you know, the guy's really built a storied career in R&D. He worked for many years for Boston Scientific for, I think, roughly almost 13 years uh, as a scientist. Then he was a manager of R&D for the Advanced Technology Group and then uh, the director of R&D for the company's market-leading stone management business. For those of you unfamiliar with Sinosure, the company is an innovator and developer of energy-based aesthetic and medical treatment systems. Sinosure develops and manufactures a diverse range of leading treatment applications for hair removal, skin revitalization, scar reduction, gynecological health, body contouring, and so much more. But uh, without further ado, Tim, I appreciate you being here. How are you? Doing great. Thanks, Mitch. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah. And, you know, we had the opportunity to interview one of your colleagues uh, earlier in a different episode, uh, Dina Ray Walter, who leads talent management for you guys and learned so much about not only her own career, her own experience, but really some of the transformation that you guys have been going through uh, the last couple of years with Sinusure. I've enjoyed working with Dana here at Sinusure. We didn't know each other. We had crossed paths before, and the podcast was great. Uh, I learned a lot about her internal thought process that I didn't know, you know, just in working with her day to day. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, like I said, I'm honored that you're here today. I want to take you back in time and ask you, you know, all these years ago, what what led you into med tech in the first place? How'd you get into med tech? Yeah, I mean, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of forces, I think, led me in the direction. Uh, it may never make it into the Johns Hopkins recruiting brochures, but the truth is, the first med tech job happened through an old fashioned print newspaper ad. Believe it or not, it's hard to remember now that things like that existed and that you ever recruited. Right? Can you imagine recruiting for talent today with a local newspaper ad? I would love it, actually. <laughs> yeah, I think yep. things were arguably simpler then. Uh, strategies were definitely different. But, you know, growing up, I was, you know, in a contract family, raised with entrepreneurial values, and uh, always interested in science. So, uh, you know, a, a self-confessed nerd from an early age. And, uh, you know, when I got uh, into education and Felt the rush you get when you realize, you know, you, you don't just open the hood of the car or the furnace or 
you know, mechanical things and, and get into fixing and creating and how does that work. But when you open sort of biology and human life in general and look under the hood, it's just a real rush to be able to get in there and feel like you can fix things that are going wrong and, and help people, you know, improve their health or their quality of life. Uh, so there's no place really professionally I'd rather be doing this. That's awesome. And, uh, and I really appreciate hearing things like that from leaders because uh, so many people go to work on a daily basis hating themselves and hating their lives. And to have passion for what you do and be able to infuse that with a work ethic is definitely something to be, to be said for. So you mentioned your family, you came from a contracting family. Do you mean construction or what type of con? Yeah, me mechanical contracting specifically. Yeah, but I grew up I grew up with uh, plumbers and sheet metal contractors and steel directors and, you know, nuts and bolts, post offices, elementary schools, worked a lot. It was great, great, never, never a shortage for summer employment growing up. Yeah. What a trade, you know, the trades are something to, uh, to be said for as well, as far as those types of skills, for sure. You know, I, I, I joke with people that surgeons are nothing more than contractors. I mean, I really do deeply see that analogy. You know, it's, it's all about figuring out how, how to use materials to, to build or fix. And uh, I think, you know, especially in orthopedics, it's an easy, I think that's an easy similarity to see. Yeah, for sure. My grandfather, warned, my grandfather warned me I would never find a better career than being a contractor. And for what we pay for uh, plumbing support and, and uh, you know, repair services and everything, he may, may have been right. Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. And it's what great skills to have. Where do you fall in the pecking order? Do you have brothers or sisters? Uh, yeah, I have a younger brother who's still back in a little Midwestern town where we started with mom and dad's phone number. Yeah. Is yeah. that right? Yeah, he's a... He's, he's also sort of in, in the medical space. He's, uh, he's an EMT firefighter. Oh, right on. That's awesome. So, you know, I'm always excited to have these types of conversations with folks, you know, at your level, because obviously you've done some things right to be leading an organization like you are today. When you look over the course of your career to date, I'm curious if you would point out if there's certain moments that you can point to that were pivotal that really kind of helped you break through and, and continue to rise up. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to say there. I think everybody has a little bit of a different journey. I certainly started out on the trajectory of, of hands-on and staff scientist, you know, sort of conceived of a career, uh, being hands-on, you know, through the whole, the whole go. And as I got hooked on the impact of seeing patients respond to the treatments and the desire, I had the desire to expand and, and, you know, do bigger and bigger things. You know, yeah, I, I think a lot of people get to that collection point where they realize that they're going to have to, to shift their career into the, into the management side and, and, uh, and broaden their capacity to, uh, to have that impact. For me, I got, I got really lucky in many ways. I think no doubt there's hard work and preparation. You know, you asked me about school. I, you know, I, I put my time in. But I was fortunate to have those opportunities and to have mentors along the way, I think, guide me along. And, you know, a little bit of preparation, some good luck, and then a willingness to take risk has made, has made all the difference. When I first started at Boston Scientific, I was very rapidly over my head. You know, we built a lab and, and put devices, you know, into patients in a, in a clinical trial. And, uh, I got to hear the feedback from those patients directly because we were, you know, we were all working in a small team to make this happen. And 
you know, all of you, that was definitely the moment or the inflection point where it all crystallized for me that this is the right place for me to be. This is all the interests and all the desire for impact that I've always had. Uh, and here's the path to really, you know, make this happen. And I think as you spoke to before, you know, crystallizing that passion and having that passion and carrying that around and knowing that you're in the right place, you know, where a profession becomes, you know, if not purely a calling, you know, it has some elements of that. Yeah. I mean, that, that makes all the difference. So I think, you know, I think that's the, that's the key one. And then realizing at some point that the, you know, getting so addicted to that impact, uh, that you have to, you have to enlarge your world enough to see that happening in nine projects at once instead of in just, you know, just in one product. And then, you know, I, I went through all the phases of letting go of hands-on control and, you know, sort of scaling up my world. I think that most people go through on that, on that trajectory. And each one of those inflection points, you know, came with its, its challenges, but it's really that crystallization of the passion. I think it's carried, carried me to where I'm at today and, and will carry me on. Um, I'm excited. I'm just as excited about the next 10 years as I, as I am about the last 25. That's awesome. You know, there's a couple of things I want to unpack here. I've said this, people who listen to the podcast on a regular basis probably are getting uh, nauseous from how many times I say this, but I will tell you now you, are, you continue the streak for me of 100% of leaders who are at the VP level or higher have all said that one of the biggest reasons that they're where they're at today is that risk element, sticking your neck out taking on projects that were outside of your comfort zone, but that gave you an opportunity not only to continue to enhance your skill set, but to be visible and then be called on for more and more. And you just said it there, willing, willingness to take risk. You fell over your head. The desire for impact. I want to ask you, when you were a scientist and when you started to get into your first management role, did you always know that you wanted to be a formal leader of people or is this something that evolved as you began your professional career? Um, I would say that for me, it definitely evolved over the course uh, of the journey. Um, I was just so deep in the technical doing of it early on and, and appreciated, you know, very early on that, that, that could, that's not just one person. I mean, the myth of the sole inventor in the garage lab, you know, explodes really early when you're trying to do a little trial work and germinate, right? But yeah, it was definitely something that I, that I came to. I mean, when I, I worked for a while and then went back and got a PhD. And in the course of that, I was a TA and uh, taught a couple of classes. And so I did have some experience in that environment, you know, where you're teaching and training and mentoring. And that, that, uh, that's really rewarding. I mean, I think that that's akin to the impact you feel when you go to the clinic with a device and, and see the impact on patients. So that naturally sort of you know, dovetails with my, with my man groove, I think, and has been an easy, an easy pivot to make. And, you know, fast forward now, some of the greatest moments of my career have been, you know, seeing the success of, uh, of people I've hired or grown or mentored, learned from along the way. Because, you know, let's be honest, there's, there's brilliant technicians out there. And I use the term technician in the sense that we're talking about individual contributors, people who are very skilled at their craft, right? But then that doesn't necessarily translate into being a great leader. And yes, there's, there's a learning curve and trials and tribulations along the way. 
you mentioned, hey, I learned to let go and kind of went through that process. That's not, not everybody can do that. And I'm just curious if you would talk to that piece, that inflection point where you had to start letting go in that order to be an effective leader and let your team do their job. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, the specific, I remember the specific program because, you know, at some point you realize you're moving up through the system and, and you make a conscious decision. I think that, um, to take this next step, I need to let go of this. And, you know, you sit and think about, okay, well, when these results come back, it's no longer me speaking to these results. It's all these other people. And yeah, that was, that was a difficult, it was like, you know, we were doing global market research, trying to understand extreme users, you know, in multiple international markets. It was just obviously a really ambitious and really valuable, critical thing to do that just couldn't be the work of, you know, just one, one person. So I, you know, there's sort of a natural element. I think if you're really pursuing link scale of impact, you just sort of naturally are going to come to that point where you know that other people have to get involved and you shift to, you know, trying to even, even making the shift from first, first you're one person and then you have a team and you need to lead that team. But then you realize that really to go from there, it's not just leading teams, it's creating teams that lead teams that lead other teams. And, you know, for me, it was, you know, it wasn't necessarily difficult. I think once I got to that place where emotionally I could let go, intellectually, I could always see that, you know, there's no other way to go big than to, uh, than to take, take this path. What about when you had to let go from the next level, like you were saying, where now you're managing leaders, right? You're not necessarily managing the direct team, but now you're getting things done through people who are getting things done through people. I mean, I guess there, I, I want to zoom out to diversity and collaboration a little bit, uh, because, you know, my, my philosophy as things, as things mature, my philosophy crystallized into, you know, this is a patient journey first. Um, and then it's a people journey, uh, in terms of building teams to drive toward that people impact. And if you get those two right, then the third P product, you know, comes along for the ride and. The only way to really do that well is to, you know, be able to understand a patient's perspective, understand how a tool fits into the purchasing patterns of a hospital, you know, what the regulatory path is going to be, what the reimbursement story is. And so, you know, you so rapidly get to the need for collaboration. And from there, I think it's a short step to needing a lot of diversity of thought and a lot of diversity of opinion and knitting that diversity together. And so in this journey of product development where, you know, you're trying to take these clinical needs and create products, create value for the company uh, and delight, you know, all the consumers and all the stakeholders of it. There's so many voices in that room that for me, by analogy, leading leaders, you know, and, and creating the environment where there are a lot of diversity, of, there's a lot of diversity of opinion and you're trying to knit that group together. So that individually, some of them may be more technicians. Some of them may be more what than how. Uh, most of them are probably more how than what as you, as you float up through the organization. But that sort of creating the symphony out of all those voices, creating a, a whole that's able to, to move and function, you know, as one voice. I don't know. I just, in my, uh, in my convoluted brain, all of that sort of flows out of one you know, one unified place. 
And I was fortunate, you know, in Boston Scientific, one of the founders, you know, was very much a strong advocate. John Abley is his name. He was very much a strong advocate of that collaborative culture. Um, and in his retirement, you know, did a lot to promote uh, and expand on those themes. So I was fortunate to come up, I think, in a culture that really valued that. Um, you know, sort of, they were into diversity and diversity of thought and perspective before diversity was, was, uh, you know, as much on people's minds and tongues as it has been in the last, in the last few years. So perhaps that's, uh, you know, I think we're always, I don't want to overclub my contribution. You know, I'm a part of a community and a team always in terms of, you know, you're part of a fabric always. So, you know, probably there's a lot of credit to having been a part of that culture of collaboration and seeing that theme pull all the way through all those disparate elements. You know, it came reasonably easy, I think, I think for me. And as long as you put collaboration first and sort of collective outcomes first, I think, uh, I think a lot of, a lot of the struggles, you know, can fall away if you're really willing ultimately to take that risk, right? Because that implies you're taking the risk of a big collective accomplishing a goal and having the credit come where the credit should. And so I suppose that falls in the, in the taking risks bucket as well at some point. And with that, you know, the old adage is a leader is only good as the people around him or her. And I'm sure you've had your own ups and downs, trials and tribulations of, of hiring. Over time, how do you spot, how do you spot top performance? And I'm curious, like, exact, you know, what do you look for? And over time, you know, throughout your leadership career, have you been able to pick out certain themes as well, as far as, you know, what separates folks from, from others? Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's an age old question with, uh, with a thousand answers. I think it's, I think it ends up being very situational. You know, one of the things I, if I recall correctly, you and Danny talked about is, you know, you come into a situation with what you think is the playbook and then you try and run the playbook and lo and behold, you know, the so-called perfect playbook doesn't work out. So I, you know, I think when it comes to building teams, you have to be very, very cautious of it culture that you're in because ultimately what you're doing is building culture and so you know if there's a way to spawn a top performer it's i think especially at the leadership level you know you're looking for people who come in not leading with the what they're leading with the how and when you dig into leading with the how they're leading with you know what's the culture there how do i fit in you know what culture needs to be built and I think when you hear those kinds of questions come from the other side, then you know, you know, you're working with people who are going to give more to the collective whole than, than they're looking to take. And those are the kinds of team players that, that uh, I think inevitably turn into to top performers. So, you know, then how peace is really, is really key. And typically when I talk to people, you know, after the screening, you know, I mean, there are certain especially in the technical space, there are certain non-negotiables background that you have to have. But I think a lot of good, there's a lot of great people out there and and a lot of people come meeting that minimum bar. You know, what I get into is a conversation that's along the lines of, okay, look, I have objectives with this team and you have objectives from a career standpoint and and you're on a journey. You know, we have an hour to talk about this how do we get to a place where we can put between us a two-year plan where we're both growing, you know, our, our mutual objectives in the same direction and in a satisfying way? And I think if you can have a conversation like that with someone, 
you know, it's another indicator that you're talking to someone who has direction and resolve, but also, you know, thinks about life in that, in that collaborative collect, uh, benefit kind of frame of mind. You bring up a good point. You know, it's easy, way easier to screen for the technical ability. There's, um, projects that you can give them. You can put them in real life situations and have them, you know, do something. You can ask them questions about the types of software or the systems or whatever they've been a part of. So much harder to vet the cultural aspect, you know, and there's, yes, that's why we have behavioral based questions, but is there anything that stands out to you as to how you try and really get to the, hey, is this person collaborative or is this person really more so focused on the how versus the what? And how do we substantiate that based on, you know, what I think they've done in the past? You know, past performance is not, it's not a guarantee of future, you know, future outcomes as the old, the old adage goes. And I think, Again, that comes back to, you know, there are situational needs. This isn't a one size fits all. I don't think even the leadership aspects are one size fits all. This is very much right, right person, you know, business in general, perhaps life is very much right person, right place, right time. But typically I'll take people into, you know, some sort of scenario where, you know, you, you run into an issue in a program or a clinical trial fails, um, and have them walk through you know, how you solve or how you address or give me examples of how they've addressed problems to, you know, to pivot and still continue on the path to market. And I think, you know, the, the what folks are going to dig into why did it fail and, and how does this work and, and who are the experts and, you know, the consultants for the, the various uh, subcomponent issues of a problem, you know, will get pulled out. I think, you know, you spot the people who are taking the bigger picture who sort of glance at that stuff. And, you know, come at it with the tacit understanding that, you know, most, you know, mid-size med tech product development programs, you know, you could easily have a team of 75 people, you know, working for three or four years. And, you know, of that, 20% of the, the, the inputs are really in that discovery and that pure technical place. So people who immediately go to team components and to understanding the dynamics between, you know, well, okay, who's, who's throwing the objection and, and how is the conversation flowing within the team rather than drilling into the product? And that's almost always, in my experience, a good, a good way to, or another, another tool to use in, uh, in feeling out how people would react and that balance between the what, the what now. You know, there's a variety of folks that listen to this show that are aspiring leaders, you know, maybe they're in their first role. Maybe they're directors now and they want to continue to rise up and lead an entire organization. What did, if you look back over the course of where you've been and where you are today, you know, other than taking risk, putting yourself out there, the collaboration piece, any other advice that you would share that you think would help others try and, you know, continue to rise up? Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's obvious. I think as I've learned from, from Gen Z, it doesn't happen on its own. I'm not sure I have to say that though, in my experience to aspire, you know, younger aspiring leaders. I think, I think there's been a very big shift in, you know, work life balance and the idea that, you know, this is on you and there, there could be no resentment and no mistake and no compromise at that issue. You have to go out and make leadership happen. And you also have to, I think, be really cautious. You know, in my story, you know, I've inflected a few times. It's been a nonlinear path for me. It's not for everyone, you know, but you do have to also be willing to ignore, I think, anybody who's telling you, 
no, you can't have that next level. You can't, you can't go in this direction. You know, I, I don't think there are really can'ts. There are only gaps, right? As you look at what you need to do for that next level, you know, if you can't find a way to fill that in where you're at, then you have to take the risk and, uh, and keep moving, you know? Um, cause it really is about risk. You've got to break stuff. You got to be a pain in the ass sometimes, you know, cause you're out there really, uh, I think if, you know, if you're really as in love with R and D and as, as you need to be to sort of survive the journey, to enjoy the journey end to end, you have to be really married to doing the impossible. And I think that that's just as true in your career and in your growth, you know, there shouldn't be any boundaries. You should, you should reach out for what you want. That's awesome. I want to end up with, with two other things. What do you like most about, about uh, leadership? You know, really seeing the success of, of the people on the project. I, I hire a lot of people out of defense, consumer products. And, you know, this is a wonderful space for people who's, you know, who really feed and, and, and their groove is, is impact. And so, you know, it's very gratifying to, bring people in, especially from outside the industry and help them grow a professional career, uh, but also, you know, to sort of feel that impact. I must confess, I, I'm also, you know, I call it sometimes guerrilla, guerrilla innovation. You know, it's a, it's an interesting and fun challenge in leadership. Uh, as you think about the part of leadership where it's, it's not about project down, it's about up to the funders and up to management and it's uh, really, really uh, just endlessly interesting to me. You know, how do I do the impossible? How do I help people see a vision of what can be instead of what's just right in front? Um, and it's just a tremendous opportunity and privilege, you know, be in rooms, raising money, whether it's, you know, outside of companies or, you know, in boardrooms in companies to make that innovation possible. It's just the best to be able to be able to live both sides, right? To have a technical vision and be down in the weeds and, and the patient impact, but also, you know, to be material to the process of raising the money and doing the practical things, because I think we all know there's a lot of invention that lies fallow until you find a way to have it create value. And that's the name. So, so Tim, you know, one of the things that I always see uh, as a challenge for most hiring managers is when I, as a recruiter, I ask, you know, to put yourself in the shoes of the person that you're ideally trying to hire. And, you know, keep in mind, they're doing the job elsewhere. They're doing the exact same job elsewhere. Why should they stop dead in their tracks and consider at least a conversation as a no-brainer and see this as perhaps an opportunity that's going to create enhancement for their own career? When you look at Sinoshare and kind of what you're building there, what would you say? Well, I think there are, I think there are a lot of reasons to, to take a look, I think the, you know, what, one of the aspects is that, you know, if you're at a strategic, you know, that's a, that's a big shop and a long road. Um, Sinusure is a 30 year old company, but as I said, sort of culturally has more of a startup feel. And, uh, that's an opportunity to move fast and to see, uh, you know, a wider swath of the business and get a lot of experience quickly. Um, it's also sort of uniquely positioned, and one of my hypotheses about coming in was it sits right on the edge between regulated med tech and, and more consumer-facing or, or beauty products. So, um, you know, given that the future of healthcare, I think, is largely on a trajectory of IoT and, and more personalized wearables and, and home treatments and things that you can customize, you know, I've been uh, 
I've been really enjoying that the, the life kind of at the boundary between the two worlds. And I think that that's a great add on uh, to, uh, to somebody's career trajectory. Right. That's awesome. And the last thing that I'll sum up with is, if I'm not mistaken, you're actively building your own team right now. Obviously, you've shared some great insights as far as your own leadership philosophy, what's where you've gotten. I love what you said about so many of these things and the the what versus the how differentiation. I love that. What else do you want to say about what's going on at SinoShare and what might be in it for some R&D professionals looking to uh, make a change in their career? Yeah, sure. Uh, SinoShare is a great company. It's, you know, it's 30 plus years old uh, and well-established, but definitely still has the spirit uh, and agility of a startup. And I've really enjoyed being here. I've been here about a year and a half. Uh, it sits at the edge also of, yes, in the aesthetic space between plastic and reconstructive surgery and, you know, sort of spa treatments and more cosmetic treatments. So it's been a really interesting opportunity to work in regulated med tech but also get a flavor of what that's like when it's a little bit more consumer facing and, and, you know, you're thinking more about not just a, a, an operating theater, but about equipment and procedures and products that are purchased by, by real people. So we're building a, you know, a team, uh, around product innovation in this space. You know, it's a space that's just growing globally and has a lot of investment. So, uh, it's, uh, it's been a really interesting learning experience. And I think. Uh, it's a really uh, great opportunity to um, bring skills to bear in a market-leading product portfolio. Awesome. Well, what we'll do, Tim, is if it's good with you, we'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile as well as a link to SinoShare in the uh, show notes. Sure. And then uh, encourage folks to reach out to you directly that may have interest either now or in the future. And nonetheless, really appreciate you being here today and sharing the insights that you have. It's, it's been great to host you. Yeah, thank you. It's been a great conversation. Thanks for listening to the MedTech Talent Lab podcast. For more content-rich episodes, log on to theanthonymichaelgroup.com or subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform.